SequelCast 2 is part of the Batman Podcast Network. For more information, go to batman-on-film.com. Hi, this is Matt Bradley Shurgi, host of SequelCast 2. Uh, this episode is special because it will start with a uh, brief uh, interview I did with Kevin Given. He's the creator of the Carl Vincent character, popularized in novels and comics and uh, even in upcoming film. And... We talk about vampire movies, we talk about his, uh, his books, his comics, working in different mediums. It's a real fun talk. Uh, and after that, Thrasher and I do our normal show. Uh, this time around, we're looking at the original Cube movie. So, uh, as always, thanks for listening. Just wanted to give you a heads up about the interview at the top of the show. And I will catch you later. After the credits roll, there's always more to tell. Especially when the video sales are doing really well. Hello and welcome to Sequel Cast 2, a podcast looking at movies in a franchise one film at a time. I'm Matt Bradley Shirky, and with me we have a very special guest, Kevin Given, who is here to talk about these um, Dracula Rising comics and books and movie that he's working on related to the Carl Vincent character. Uh, Kevin, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me. Yep, my dog's getting excited at little kids playing outside the house, so that's always fun. Uh, yeah. So, vampires have been around in, in so many different forms over the years. What do you think made vampires jump out to you? Like, when's the first time you saw a vampire in a movie or a TV show that made you think it was cool? Uh, that would be Dark Shadows, Barnabas Ooh. Collins. Yeah, that's a... It's been on for so long. Was it the original black and white version, or? Yeah, it was. Uh, I was coming home from school and um, happened to catch it one night. I think it was on ABC TV, and that was my first exposure to the whole vampire genre. And was it something you watched every day after that, or by yourself with your family, with your friends? Yeah, I was. I was kind of a couch potato. I'd sit there and watch that, and then it'd be the Brady Bunch and Partridge Family and all that. All those. Uh, half-hour sitcoms that were in syndication and Star Trek was one of my favorites. Um, but that's my first exposure to the whole area of vampires. And it really was uh, uh, ahead of its time with this portrayal of the supernatural uh, Yes, uh, it was amazing. They uh, look, used a lot of H.P. Lovecraft on those shows. For a low-budget show, it was very well-written and for a soap opera. Yeah, I've only seen the, the beginning episodes, which is before Barnabas was on, and the, the mystery would be like, oh, is it a ghost? The door just opened. But right. It did right. It had more uh, come on from there. So, uh, let's also look here. So I was looking through the, the comic sample you sent me of Dracula Rising, and I really like the mixture of, uh, you have vampires that look more monstrous, like a Nosferatu thing flying around. You also have um, mm -hmm. like ninjas and all sorts of influence from different genres. Yeah. Um, 
That's true. I came up with Carl Vincent. I was watching an old Don Knotts movie called The Ghost and Mr. Chicken. Ah. And it kind of struck me, um, what if Don Knotts was a vampire hunter? So I made it kind of a horror comedy. And I worked in a little bit of uh, Peter Vincent from the Fright Night series and uh, Carl Kolchak from the old um, Night Stalker TV series. That only lasted one season, but it's still on today in syndication for only one season. So those are my early influences on Carl Vincent. Yeah, the Night Stalker was a big influence for the X-Files as well. Yeah, Darren McGavin actually appeared on several episodes of uh, X-Files. Hmm. The, the actor who played Carl Kolchak. Yep. It's uh, it, it's always neat to see the mixture of the, the supernatural and, and other genres, like a detective story. Yeah, that's why that's why I uh, kind of don't just focus on vampires. I throw, you know, other, I got a werewolf coming up and other, other type of supernatural stuff. Um, Sebastian Vassilis came back as a ghost in Last Rites, and uh, and he's coming back in this story too. It'll be in issue three, actually. Oh, great! Uh, I noticed you said you had worked with this. Uh, character in, in different formats with Carl Vincent. It originally was like a screenplay, then you did novels and a comic and you're working on a movie. Yes, that's correct. I went to uh, Writer's Boot Camp out in Los Angeles and I studied with the Long Ridge Writers Group. They, they taught me how to structure stories and character development. And I wrote the script first and kind of worked on the novel when I was doing security work. Um, on the overnight shift, I had a lot of free time, so I worked on the novel then. And uh, I took the script and gave it to my artists, who uh, started drawing it. Now with Dracula Rising, we, we don't even have a script; we're just kind of winging it as we go. I tell him what I want, kind of like the old Marvel way. Oh yeah, I tell him what I want, and he just draws it. Rodolfo is probably the best artist I ever uh, commissioned for these stories. And I see the picture of you there with, uh, on the Facebook the, holding up the physical issues. That must have been a special moment. Yeah, the, I had I, I had them printed through uh, Kablam. And I'm thinking about putting them on Indie Planet. But the, another bit of good news, I might have a publisher. There's no uh, contract signed yet, so I can't say who it is. But there might be a publisher uh, putting the comics out very soon. Well, that's fantastic. Uh, we were talking a bit uh, offline when you contacted me about d- different vampire movies and, and sequels and, and so forth. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking back to uh, the original Dracula, how many different versions there were. Did you have a favorite with uh, uh, Christopher Lee? or? It's kind of a toss-up between Lugosi and Lee. I mean, mm-hmm. Lugosi's... The movie was actually... And Todd Browning um, was kind of kind of strange the climax took place off screen <laughs> and everything else but Lugosi's presence kept that movie going and he was phenomenal and every uh, Dracula since then has you know tried to emulate what Lugosi did but Christopher Lee had a certain sophistication and nobility about him that made him an awesome Dracula and then a close third would be Gary Oldman mm. in the Francis Ford Coppola version Right, I think to the Bela Lugosi Dracula, there's a scene early on, uh, Harker goes into Dracula's castle, 
and there's an armadillo just wandering around. Yeah, I remember that. But also with the Christopher Lee, he did so many Dracula movies, even though in later interviews he said he didn't want to do them, and he keeps on reducing his dialogue so he wouldn't have to say lines. Exactly. He, he did more Dracula movies than any other actor, which is um, kind of fascinating when you think about it. as many Dracula movies have been made. You'd think they'd get a lot to reprise the role, a lot of actors. But he did more than anyone else, and I guess John Carpenter, not John Carpenter, um, what's his name? The other actor who played Dracula, I can't think of his name, is John Carradine. John Carradine. Oh, yeah. Second, second amount of, most amount of times. Right. And, and I was... he only played Dracula twice, with the original Dracula movie and with uh, Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. Isn't that funny? That's the only other movie he played Dracula in, and yet you think uh, over time, what, when people think of Dracula, they think of Lugosi. Right. He did play other vampires, I guess, for Columbia, but they couldn't use the name Dracula. Hmm. And those movies were not as well made as the Universal ones, if I remember right. I, didn't, I think I've only seen one of those. Right. They've, um, they don't show them on TV as much as they used to, but they have those, those, those sets with the Dracula, House of Dracula, those sort of things. Exactly. You'd also mention the uh, Lost Boys. Oh, yeah, Kiefer Sutherland. To me, that's his tour de force performance. He hasn't, for me, anyway, he hasn't done anything as good as David the Vampire in Lost Boys since that movie. He, 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 com he completely commanded that movie. It was a fantastic performance. Well, it really brought vampires to a lazy West Coast beach town. It gave it a very different flavor than the typical uh, European castle setting. Exactly. 80s kind of punk new wave look for the vampires. Right, and then there's a Cry Little Sister and then some of that stuff on the soundtrack. Yeah, um, Cry Little Sister, Foreigner, Lost in the Shadows, a lot of good music on that one. I watched one of the sequels, I think it was the second Lost Boys movie, and instead of Kiefer Sutherland, they have his fatter cousin playing basically yeah, the same part, which is amusing. Exactly. Yeah, they seem to have the atmosphere down, but the plot kind of mm -hmm. didn't really gel, and the, the acting was kind of weak, in my view, anyway. Yeah, and yet that movie did well enough for them to do a third one, so who knows, it's uh, a title people recognize, I'm a bit surprised... We haven't seen a remake of that, and yet we've seen a remake of Fright Night. Exactly, exactly. They, it's Lost Boys stands alone, I guess. <laughs> yeah, also with Dracula and vampires, I think of Monster Squad is another one. Yes, um, the actor, I can't think of Duncan Riger hmm. played Dracula in that one. He, really good performance in a mediocre movie. Sure, and in more recent times, specifically with Dracula, you had Dracula 2000, which was a strange one, linking Dracula yeah, to Judas. Was, yeah, that was uh, interesting. Christopher Plummer's Van Helsing was cool, but mm -hmm. it was kind of... The Dracula was kind of, I don't know, he wasn't in it that much, actually. Not really. <laughs> if you like vampires, there's a really good comedy called What They Do in Shadows. Have you seen that one? No, that one I haven't seen. Where's that on? I, it's probably streaming on Netflix or something like that. And it's uh, 
an improvisational kind of mockumentary about a, a house with all sorts of vampires, and you have a character that represents like a effeminate Anne Rice vampire. You have one that's more like a Gary Oldman Dracula vampire. Um, right. And, and it's, it's it's funny, quirky uh, New Zealand movie. Mm-hmm. With the Doom Shadows. Yeah, that yeah that, that one's pretty good. You don't see vampire comedies too often. And um, when you're working on your stories and you're having elements of comedy in there, how do you decide what the what the line is because if you make it too silly it takes away from like the horror of the vampires and yet you want to uh have a storyline going and not have the comedy make it seem like a spoof the whole time right um well i i think ghostbusters was a good example of a horror comedy that did it pretty much right the horror element was there and the comedy element with of course saturday night live alumnus and it was that was pretty straightforward the comedy was good the horror was good also like we mentioned lost boys um fright night those movies um kind of set the standard but you know then there's those uh, vampire suck movies which those movies pretty <laughs> much suck <laughs> it's pretty bad and uh, they try too hard to be funny and the horror element isn't really in that um so if you can balance the horror and the comedy, you can make a really good movie. One that I don't think is a, a great comedy vampire movie, but it has some good jokes, is Mel Brooks' uh, final film to date, uh, Dracula Dead and Loving It. With Leslie Nielsen. Yeah, Dracula Dead and Loving It. Yep. And it... Yeah. The more you know about Dracula, the more you really can get some of the, the jokes in that film, even with lines of dialogue. Uh, the bats fly in and poop on the stairs, and he says, Children of a night, what a mess they make. And that's a takeoff right, on right. the line, what music they make. Yeah. Yeah, that was a decent one. And, uh, of course, Young Frankenstein was his tour de force. Well, certainly the, the cinematography and the, and the music, especially in that, it, it could come out of the, uh, the original Universal films. And in fact, some right, of the props right. were. Definitely. <laughs> so, writing is a, a difficult, lonely process. When, when you're sitting down to start one of your stories, do you have any rituals you do to kind of get in the mood? Or do you write at the same time every day? Or just when inspiration hits you? Uh, well, when I get the inspiration, like when I saw uh, the ghost of Mr. Chicken, it was like really late at night and I was trying to fall asleep. Huh. But then when I thought, oh, my God, this is going to work. And I just jumped right up and I started taking notes and uh, outlining it before I went to sleep. So. And the outline um, still made sense the next morning? Well, to a degree, I had to redo <laughs> some of it. But, you know, it's it's just like when it hits me, then I write. Because I tried writing a Western and a science fiction story before oh. I did uh, Carl Vincent, but it didn't really gel with me. I had to force myself to get in my get in, in front of my laptop and start writing. But with Carl Vincent, I had to force myself away from the laptop. I was just sitting there for hours on end writing, writing, writing. So when I get the, like, the feeling that this is going to be good, you know, I'm there at the at the laptop. And I don't stop. <laughs> Do you find revision difficult? Uh, to a degree, because when you first read it and you thought you wrote a masterpiece and you see all this stuff in there that you don't think should be there, 
right. you got to take it out. But then you don't, when you take it out, you think, should I have taken that out? Yeah, so there's a lot of difficult stuff in revising, um, making it gel in the way it would, you know, for a reader to enjoy it. So what's going on with the Carl Vincent movie? Yes, um, I put the script online uh, on a site where producers look for projects to work on. And I had just moved back to Florida, actually. And Jeffrey Crisp, who is um, Crisp Filmworks out of Lakeland, he's been in several um, shorts and movies, and he's produced some stuff. This is the first time trying to produce a full major motion picture. But he got a hold of the script and contacted me. And we filmed a few scenes already. And now I believe we're going to go for funding, but I can't tell where it's coming from yet because none of the paperwork's been signed. Sure. It'll be a big announcement. Um, if you, if anyone's interested, they can go to Facebook, like my Carl Vincent page, like his Last Rights page, or you can go to YouTube and subscribe to my channel, Comics Let's Talk, Kevin Gibbon. Excellent. Uh, if... Let's see. So, so, what sort of feedback have you gotten from your novels from the readers? Has it influenced uh, any of the sequel novels to the original? Uh, well, so far it's been good. I, I have a picture of the girl, first girl who read Foul Blood. I took a picture with her and used it on my um, interview with the Vampire Library page. She was the first one to read it, and she thought it. She thought it was like one of the best mystery novels she'd ever read foul blood reads more like the old noir style mysteries like uh dashiell hammett and mickey spillane mm -hmm. raymond chandler type of things but then there's only one vampire in it and this is carl's first encounter with a vampire and i created the characters um david reynolds is the serial killer i i based a lot of these characters on real people because i wanted a gritty type of realism so I based David Reynolds on Danny Rawlings, who, um, you know, was a killer here in Florida. And then I based um, Leo Kowalski, the club, the owner of First Impressions, the club where the bodies are piling up out back. I based him on the Iceman, Richard Kuklinski, the real mafia hitman. Just to give it that realism. When you when you study the especially the old mafia stories, it's very disturbing what they could get away with in an era with a lot less uh, technology. Exactly, that's why I used uh, Mafia Hitman as the owner of the club. Um, in the story, he was he went to jail for a time and didn't rat out his friends, so they gave him that club as a kind of a gift. And right. he, you know, he's cash cow for him, so. <laughs> Is there a novel that uh, people seem to think is their favorite that you've done so far? Of the novels? Yep. Um, well, Last Rites has had more exposure, and it's more of an epic adventure. Um, I got a lot of uh, positive reviews on, uh, on Amazon. And it, basically, it starts in Boston, and he... They have to go to Cairo. They're trying to prevent the resurrection of the three most dangerous vampires. It's a female trinity with the Hebrew Lilith, Egyptian Sekhmet, and the Hindu Kali. Once they're all resurrected, then they will become all-powerful and subjugate mankind to their will type of thing. <laughs> so Lilith has already been resurrected at the beginning of the story, and Kyle is recruited by the ghost of his arch-nemesis, who is Sebastian Basilis, uh -huh. to 
to go on this vampire hunting crusade. It's kind of like a Magnificent Seven meets Fearless Vampire Killers type of thing. And he has to have several vampire hunters to go with him. Now, people ask, why would Sebastian, who is the arch nemesis of Carl, lead Carl on this mission? And his answer is that he's in purgatory, which makes sense to Carl's Catholic way of thinking. And he's trying to redeem himself and make it into heaven, so he's helping Carl um, <clears throat> with this mission to prevent the resurrection of all these vampires, which will destroy the earth. And it's always a fun moment in those kind of stories where uh, the team gets together. Yeah, I have a, a really great team uh, in this book. I got my ninja warrior, which is Kate Bryant. And she witnessed her father killed when she was only eight years old by a Yakuza. Hmm. So she, her, her uncle led her to a sensei. Her uncle had hurt his back in a car accident. He couldn't fight. So he brought Kate to a sensei. And she learned martial arts the ways of the ninja in order to grow up and seek revenge on the death of her father. And then I have Thor, my character called the Greek god Thor. He's kind of a shell shock, special needs immortal. He was worshipped as Hercules in Greece, and uh, when he went to the Norwegian lands, he was worshipped as Thor. And he kind of gets the past confused. You know, did this happen as when he was Hercules or when he was Thor? He's just kind of a little shell shock, little humorous. A character who winds up being the muscle of the group. And uh, Athena Tymon is my 2,000-year-old immortal. She's trapped in the body of a 12-year-old due to an ancient curse, and she has to go along on the mission to break the curse so she can start aging and look the way she should. And those are the main characters. Great, and that sounds like the best way for people to find out more information about the books is to go to the Facebook page. Yeah, um, the comics are going to be out soon, the Dracula Rising. There are comics for the others, but the artwork, is, though good, is not as good as Dracula Rising. So I'm going to have my new artists redraw them. Uh, mm. Rodolfo Ezequiel is the new artist, and I've had a lot of praise about his art. Um People have read the comics and said this is really good. The art stands out, and it makes it worth reading. One last question I can think of. Uh, when doing research of, of vampires from different countries or the undead from different countries, did you notice any similarities between the old legends? Um, yeah, there's a lot of similarities and a lot of differences. Um the European vampires, and I can't remember all the details actually at this sure. time, but the, the, the European vampires are a bit different than the Asian vampires. They all have the same, you know, they have to drink blood and uh, and with the same weaknesses. Some vampires are killed by sunlight and some are just really allergic to sunlight and it won't kill them, but they can't stand it. And there's, you know, subtle differences throughout the different vampire lore. I'm always amused in China, you can't show uh, skeletons, but you can have a ghost, you can have, you know, a lot of violence with blood and things, but skeletons are off limits for some reason. Really? Yeah. I don't know. I've got skeletons in uh, Dracula Rising, so I don't know. <laughs> I didn't know about that one. <laughs> I only knew about it. There's a, a game, World of Warcraft, and when in some article it mentioned when they brought it to China, they had to take out all the skeletons. Oh, in China. Okay. China, yeah. Oh, the Chinese. Um, yeah, that's that's a new one to me. I didn't I didn't really read up too much on the Chinese 
with the Asian vampires like I did for the European ones because you know, I don't have any Chinese vampires in this story. But I'm going to have some soon, so I'll probably be probably doing a lot of research into that area too. Pretty cool. Thank you so much for your time to come on talking about vampires and some vampire movies. Uh, any last thing oh, you want to you say? Thank you for having me. Oh, sure. Not a problem. Uh, yeah, just uh, don't forget, if you're interested in checking it out, you can get you can look at the first issue for free on this Tapas website, T-A-P-A-S. Anyone that's interested can check that out. Um, go to Facebook if you like it, and like my Carl Vincent Vampire Hunter page, and subscribe to my channel on YouTube, Comics Let's Talk, Kevin Given. And anything uh, exciting coming on the YouTube page? Um, well, I've got a brand new co-host, actually. She did oh. one show with me, which was the History of Action Comics. And her name's April Childers. She's a very pretty girl. And she helped me along with that. And now I have a co-host, and we have some good banter going on there. So I think it'll be a, a, a vast improvement to the show. That's fantastic. I, I meant with the comic books, as a kid in the 90s, I would read a lot of them, and I thought, well, they'll, they'll never make these as movies, and then you go to the movie theaters now, and almost everything is based on a comic book. Exactly. Alright, Kevin, well, thanks so much. We'll, uh, we'll send you a link when the, the show goes up. It should be um, within the next week or so. So there's gotta be a way out. We can avoid the traps using the boot. Holloway, is it? What do you think? Look for an exit? Okay. What about you? It can't be that simple. It won't be that simple. Look around. Hello and welcome to Sequel Cast 2, a podcast looking at movies in a franchise one film at a time. I'm your host, Matt Bradley Shergy, and with me is William Thrasher. Or as I like to be called, William Thrashrock. Although that series has passed us by. I just wanted to get that out there. That's right. Um, in fact, maybe I should have called this Sequel Cast, Sequel Cast, Sequel Cast. No, we were talking about Cube. <laughs> a, uh, the first of a, a trilogy of independent, I wouldn't call it horror film, I don't know, more of like a drama, science fiction drama. Um, yeah, I would say sci science fiction drama. I guess you can say horror film because there's like some kills, but it's not, you know, about the, all about the kills, right? But anyway, this this first one came out in 97, directed by Vincenzo Natali, produced by Mara May and Betty Orr, written by Andre Bajelic, Graham Manson, and Vincello Natali, starring Nicole DeBoer... Nikki Gordagni, I'm sure I'm mutilating these, David Hewlett, Andrew Miller, Julian Richings, Wayne Robson, and Maurice Dean Witt. Music by Mark Corvin, cinematography Derek Rogers, edited by John Sanders. This was part of the uh, feature film uh, project uh, from um, Canada, financed by, you know, something the, the country of Canada does to finance independent film, which was pretty cool. Um, and this... You know, it wasn't like a, a box office smash, according to the limited data that's in Box Office Mojo. Off a budget of $350,000, um, box office was like 565000 But on video, I know this did really well. And certainly, the they, Sci-Fi Channel showed this a lot on TV. And that we got two sequels, so it must have done okay, right? Yeah, it, it got cult status real fast. I remember when this came out, this was one of those, the VHS for this, of of just like the mysterious figure crawling through a square-shaped hatchway. That was the haunting VHS cover that stared at you from the shelves that year. Uh, and I remember when, it, when this finally did air on the Sci-Fi Channel, I think in 98, uh, it, it took off. This had cult status. This was a movie, when I got into college, this was a movie a lot of the students wanted to talk about. 
Yeah, you know, I'm surprised I had never seen it except just for the show, but I, I worked at, you know, quite a few uh, Blockbuster videos um, back in the day when this was out. And I wanted to rent it, but what stopped me is I thought the title Cube is just stupid. And, <laughs> well, I think it's not a great title. It It's not inaccurate, right? It's about characters caught in a maze of um, stacking cubes. And in a way, it reminds me of a precursor to these... Um, sort of the modern phenomenon of escape rooms where you take friends with you in, into a room and you pay 20 bucks a piece and you have to solve puzzles and get out of the room within <laughs> a few hours. Um, but yeah, let's go over the... Uh, when did you first see it, Thrasher? You said so, you, on Sci-Fi Channel? Was it on TV? or? Yeah, I saw this for the first time on the Sci-Fi Channel on in, either in 1998 or 1999. I don't remember the specific year, unfortunately. Okay, and was it, um, I can't imagine they cut much out of it, because, like, the violence in here, I think, is, even though it's rated R, I would say the violence is pretty tame. I believe, it's, to the best of my knowledge, they showed everything. Okay, cool. Now, keep, keep in mind, this was around the time that the Sci-Fi Channel was first going to be showing, like, Lex, and they kept a lot of the nudity in that show. Not yeah, as much as it's in, in the uncut episodes, but Sci-Fi Channel was one of the few networks that was taking advantage of the fact that cable is not regulated by the FCC. I guess that's right. I recall when, when Sci-Fi Channel used to show animes on like Sunday morning or something, they would um, show a lot of the, the graphic material on that too. So yeah, they uh, it was certainly a very different channel back then, that's for sure. But um, definitely. And, you know, I mean, overall the plot is... Characters uh, wake up in a room. They don't really remember how they got there. They don't know each other, and uh, well, it's they not have just, to. It's not yeah. just a room. It's a fourteen by fourteen by fourteen. Cube That's right. With a with a two foot uh, to a side hatch, a square hatch, on every side of the room, including the ceiling and the floor. Yeah, but every room looks identical, except they use they cleverly use lighting to make, oh, this is the green room, this is the red room, and, and whatnot. And some yeah, may have traps. Just, it's just one set, and I, I found this out. Uh, it was just one set. There was only one door that the character, or that the actors could pass through. None of the other doors could support an adult's weight. So whenever you see them walk through a hatch, that's always the same hatch. Whenever you see them just looking through a hatch, that's one of the stunt hatches. But yeah, it's just one room. It's the same set throughout the entire film, but they just change the lighting to give the room a different color. It really is wonderful. And yet, despite the fact that it's one set, it doesn't look cheap. I mean, there is a phenomenal amount of detail packed into the walls of these of this cube. No, I mean, within the cube, there's... You know, squares all over the place, which not only do you have, like, the, you know, the the, the doors in the cube, as you mentioned, but you have these <coughs> repeating abstract patterns that look like something out of an old Doctor Strange comic, or they also remind me a bit of some of the uh, wall structures in the, the original Doom video game. 
Yeah, it's kind of it's strange because like those those mysterious patterns on the wall, which I I looked around. I don't think any of those patterns repeat. I think every cube facet might very well be an original design using some similar elements. I but see. Like, yeah. But each one of those designs, it's like they took two different schematics, like one for an engine and one for a washing machine, uh, cranked up the threshold in Photoshop, and then laid them on top of each other. Like, there's enough of a right. pattern there yeah. that your brain keeps trying to make sense of it, but it really is just abstract. And I like that they don't try to explain it. I mean, that would be what you would... And maybe in the sequels they do, I have no idea, but it would... Yeah. Yes and no, I'll say that. But that's one of the other brilliant things. That's one of the things that, that this movie does very well. We never see outside the cube, and we never really learn who built it or why, or why any of these people are there. All we have are whatever theories the people inside the cube came up with, any number of which might be completely wrong. And apparently there's an episode of uh, the uh, Twilight Zone called Five Characters in Search of an Exit that was oh, that's inspiration a notorious for the movie. One. Is it? I've never it's, seen that one. But, I, but it's, it's, really, it's one of their most memorable. In my opinion, it's one of their best, but, the, but it is purely a character study. There is no mm. story whatsoever... And the, for lack of a better term, the twist, uh, it's the kind of thing that can only ever be done once. Right. Um, another movie I've heard compared to this one is Hitchcock did an old movie called um, Lifeboat. Oh, yes. Where you have, like, you know, six characters stuck in a lifeboat. And it, it, you're right, it's more of like a character piece or almost like a stage play. Um, in fact, I could even people imagine people doing Cube as a stage play. But, I mean that that could actually work. Just have one, just have a cube with one face open to the audience. Have it lit so that characters, so that actors can walk out of one hatch and come in through another without necessarily seeing them moving around outside. That could work. Yeah, you'd have have to do something, you know, pretty uh, have a lighting person on the ball there. But yeah, it would it could work. And uh, so let's. Um, I mean, yeah, I mean the plot's very simple as we described it's these people in a cube and they figure out that it's a connected series of cubes and they're trying to get to the exit i mean it also it struck me in a way it was a bit like a video game story um you could redo this as a video game uh, and it has it has all these classic uh like sierra lucasarts adventure game moments like, you know, use boots on room. Because one of the things they learn really yeah. fast is that some of the rooms are trapped, and one of the characters has this brilliant idea, since most of the traps seem to be set up by motion detectors, whenever you open a door into a new room, you throw your boots in and see if it sets a trap off. And I like that they even make that into a verb, like, boot, boot it, boot the room. And, and you know what it means, and they explain it, and that the characters, you know keep on losing shoes because they get fried by lasers or whatever traps might or might not be in the rooms is, uh, say, is pretty good. I gotta say, this movie has a really good continuity editor because in doing some research on how this movie was made, um, the every scene... they Every scene... This movie was shot completely out of order. So, like, all the scenes in a red room... They filled those all in one go. And then all the scenes in a green room, they filled oh, those weird. all in one go. Yeah. So on and so forth. And they're so good about keeping the continuity of who has shoes and who doesn't, who has pants and who doesn't, who's been yes, injured right. and who hasn't. It, like, you I, you can't tell that it was shot completely out of order based on the colors of the rooms. 
It did strike me, you know, towards the end of the film, they're in shirts and uh, underpants. Underwear. Yeah, underwear, right? And, and they say, like, oh, and we ran out of boots. And it's like, well, they could use clothing, right, to try and set off these traps. Although Not by that... that by that point, they found out how to predict the trap. Should we should we go into the, the actual uh, story here? Yeah, you know, I think before going into the story, let's let's take a look at the cast. Um, we were talking before the show, it's a lot of actors, that, while not being, you know, like AAA movie stars like uh, um, Tom Cruise or The Rock or something, they are people that are I've recognized from other things. And um, one that jumps out at me is the sort of prologue sequence with the single guy, um, Alderson, is played by Julian Richings who has a very, um, you know, large nose, almost like the Marty Feldman, kind of has the Marty Feldman, uh, Elijah Wood bug eyes thing going on. Actually, he looks, he reminds me of Kenneth Williams. It's a very Kenneth Williams quality about his face. I could see that too, but it's a very memorable face. He's done a lot of um, TV shows like Supernatural and stuff, and uh, I recognize him as a... Um, He's he's British as it turns out, which I didn't realize. But he's well, he was almost in, the Doctor on Doctor Who. I could see that totally. Yeah, he has that kind of face. Um, and I recognize him from he was the uh, the man at the front desk in Kingdom Hospital, a short-lived Stephen King TV series that only lasted a season. Wow. And he had a pet dog, and and he had. But I mean, if you look at his credits, he's been in so much stuff. Um. Had you seen him in stuff before? You know, regrettably, no. Like looking over, looking over his, uh, looking over his his uh, biography, I'm not sure I have ever seen him in anything because, like, I I, ha I still haven't seen X Men: The Last Stand. Oh, well, I mean, that's a very minor part he has in that. He had a a bit part in Saw Four. Um, well, I guess I did see him in that then. Right, but I mean, days. yes, but but anyhow, you know, he's he's a he's a great actor, a distinctive face, and he's does go to the limited part. The other actor I recognized in here was Quentin, is played by Maurice Dean Wint, and it bugged me the whole movie, and I had a hunch, and I was right. He plays the um, like the army captain that seduces Hedwig and Hedwig in the arm in the Angry Itch. Yes, with the sugar daddy number. Yes, the little chicken <laughs> in the turtleneck. Uh huh. So, um, did you recognize any of the other cast? Did you have any comments you want to make on it? Uh, I recognized David Ian. Re Rewatching it, I recognized uh -huh. David Ian Hewlett, who went on to have quite a career uh, on the Sci Fi Channel. Uh, really? He was in Stargate. Okay. Yeah, he was in Stargate, Stargate oh, okay. Atlantis, and Stargate Universe uh, as Dr. Uh, Rodney McKay. Okay. And like I wasn't that I've I've never been that big of a Stargate fan, but lots of my friends are, so I ended up watching a lot of that show while hanging out at my friends' houses. And he was one of the best things in Stargate Atlantis. Cool. He's also yeah, and apparently he... in Rise of the Planet of the Apes. Interesting. Yeah, no, I um I did not recognize the actor. Not that it matters whether I recognize him or not, but I think he is he has to lift a lot of the weight in this movie. Because there's no I mean, some characters kind of become a bad guy, but it really is a, more of a character study. And characters don't always reveal the true things about themselves. And I do wonder how this film holds up in a rewatch. 
because you, you would lose a lot of the mystery element. What do the numbers in the cubes mean, uh, and, and so forth? Um, the well, one performance... thing oh, is that on. they don't... Like, as far as like date, dating the movie, one of the reasons the movie holds up so well, one, is it does have its singular production design. Two, there's really nothing to date this movie since we never see anything outside the cube and they never make reference to any like current events. The st- like the things in their personal lives they talk about are, are things that could have happened any time in the past 100 years. Um, mm. And then beyond... And then uh, beyond... But really, the only thing that, that dates this is that... This you can tell that this was recorded using uh, using some some pre HD cameras, and that's pretty much it. I, 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 yeah, there's a lot of grain to the picture. Um, certainly, the other thing too is this was in '97. It uses um, a decent amount of CG effects for the traps, and I find those don't always work. And you have to consider when this was made and stuff. Oh yeah, but. I, I'm not. I'm not one. You know, usually champion the idea of doing a special edition with better special effects. But I do think Cube is a film where you could do it if you could do it tastefully. It might yeah, work. Those like those the razor spikes. wire traps and the spikes uh, in particular, yeah. you could improve that. However, the body that gets chopped up in the beginning, I think that that's that's pretty good. That that their entire effects budget went into that that gut punch of an opening scene. But yeah, because the, right. the, the movie the movie opens, you know, we just get you know title cube, and we see you know some glory shots of the cube, and we see a guy uh, in a, I guess for lack of a better term, like prison uniform. Everyone's wearing these scrubs with a name stenciled. Uh, That's right. Where a breast pocket would be, and this guy with Alderson stenciled on him wakes up, and we see him fumble around the cube. We see him open a hatch. We see him enter a room, and then all of a sudden there's this like shrink noise. And then there's an amazing shot where we see all these tiny little wounds, bleeding wounds, open up all across his body. And then his body falls apart because it's been cut into all these little meat cubes. And then we see this, like, weird razor wire trap retract into the ceiling that apparently killed him. So the first character we get is dead within five minutes. You know, I didn't even catch that he got caught. He got cut into cubes within a cube. Yep. And but th- that's that's a motif that or or cube <clears throat> numbers is something that that keep coming back in this film because if you'll notice, with the exception of all the main group of people we follow throughout this movie, that's six people, one person for every side of a cube. It's five. If Quentin, Worth, Holloway, Renz, and Levin. I'm sorry, what was that? You, you, your audio. Oh, cut it, out. it cut out. I said it's, it looks like it's five. No, whoever you uh, say, you got, you've got Kazan. That's one. You got. Oh, Kazan. never mind. You're right. Kazan doesn't start with them at the beginning. Yeah, yeah. Inevitably, we get, we get six you characters. Get six. And also, I need. Uh, oh, and this is this is the other thing that I noticed. Um, each character uh, is introduced coming through a different hatch. Oh, yeah, that's cool. Yeah, we have one comes up through the floor, one comes down from the ceiling, and then uh, everybody else passes through one of the side, one of the four side uh, hatches. 
It, it also struck me watching this that you could have this plot and do it as a TV series. And in, in your imagined series, would it ever leave the cube, or would it just be always different combinations of people in the main cube? I, I think you would um, not leave the cube, but the idea is every season would be a different group of people. So kind of like they do in things like American Horror Story, where um, you do a different sort of cast of characters each season. Interesting. But, and they've been trying to do a remake of Cube for a while, it should be mentioned, or a sequel or something, and that has not happened. They, they've done some scripts. One alleged title is just Cubed, which I think is pretty lame. Um, but, yeah, I don't... I guess you could... Well, we'll get into that during picture sequel. Um, and, yeah, it's, the way... Hmm? Oh, go on. Oh, no, just just that it's, it's kind of... Again, it's it's difficult because there's really not there's really not much of a story because it's all the character no. interactions as they work their way through the cube and get picked off one by one. But it, but it's so I don't know maybe we should talk about the characters. Yeah, yeah, let's talk about the characters because they have different personalities and and so forth. Uh, I really like the character of of uh, Joan Levin, played by Nicole DeBoer. She ends up you know at first like. She's sort of uh, meek and timid, and she gains some confidence as the story goes on, and, and everyone seems to have a, 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 a useful personality trait to the team, and they can't figure out what hers is until she notices numbers uh, on the floor of, like, the hatchway to the other cubes. And it turns out she's a math, uh, a math whiz. Well, she she's yeah, she's a college student and she's really into mathematics. So yeah, she she's the one that first notices patterns on the serial numbers that are on all the hatchways for the cubes. Yeah, because at first the, when this they... is hmm? well, well, this oh, is this is yeah. one of the few things that really does not work in this movie for me. And maybe it does come from a lifetime of playing adventure games, but the serial numbers on the hatches would have been the first thing I noticed. And yeah. Like, nope. Like even 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 it's kind of a cheat because it's only about almost halfway through before she points out that there's a pattern to the numbers. So it's apparently it's something she was aware of the whole time. She just didn't think to mention it until someone else brought the numbers up. And even though they, they make a point of she has glasses that um, that break, she can still see through one of the lenses. It's not like they're both broken, so you can't use that really as an excuse either. Yeah, I agree that's a bit of a cheat, and I thought maybe, you know, if certain hatches had numbers and certain didn't, they, they could have done something more with that. Uh, it, I was doing some research in the film, I, I noticed um, they consulted a mathematician when doing the film, and it makes sense, because if you're going to have a movie that, especially in its second half, is so dependent on math, you want it to be accurate. Yeah, and that's something that I've, that I've always wondered, because unfortunately I'm I'm not... I, I'm decent at math, but I'm not wildly proficient, so I have no idea whether the mathematical concept, concepts of this movie are accurate or whether they are completely bullshit. Yeah, I mean, as for myself, I'm not, um, I'm okay with algebra, I'm horrific at geometry, um, mm -hmm. for whatever reason, and yeah, I never took math past, uh, algebra 2 in high school, really, so I... I know what a prime number is vaguely, but I'm I'm glad a character in the movie knows what it is, and they don't have to go into ten minute monologues explaining what all these numbers mean. You know, they just the, the script is very lean, and I, I like that. 
It is, yep. you, you learn some about the characters, but you don't have these, like, sob story speeches. And it, it doesn't get too soap opera-y as you think it might be in a, a movie where it's people trapped in a room. Well, it does kind of in the third act when tensions a little bit. start to run pretty high. Um, but yeah, but she also uh, plays into the idea that is introduced by Quentin, who is a, a police officer, that everyone who is in the cube, they must be there for a purpose. And her purpose, presumably, is deciphering the numbers. Yeah, and um, Quentin is, I would argue he's one of the main characters in the movie, and he's and at the beginning, he does—he has actually a character arc, which is nice to see, in that he begins as gruff, but seems kind of helpful, and then he starts to kind of go crazy the longer he's in the cube, well, that's and kind he of just the, the, gets sort of the very dark, selfish. Well, that's sort of the dark commentary, because he starts out kind of as the de facto leader, and, of yeah, all, and yeah. he keeps a very cool head, he stays analytical, and he keeps everybody motivated. But the movie is chronicling his descent because he ends the movie as a brutal dictator who straight up murders people. Right. And I mean, and it gets more conventional towards the end. We'll talk about that when we get there. Um, a character I wish was in it more was uh, Ren, also called the Ren, who is an escape artist who has gotten out of all these other prisons. And he's the one that teaches him the boot technique, where you take a boot, you unlace it, you... Um, you know, you, you attach it to the lace so it has a lot of lead to it, and then you throw it into a room, and if there's a trap, the boot will get fried instead of a person. Yeah, and then you just re reel it back in afterwards. Uh, and it's it's uh, it's really smart. And he also, like, talks about how you take off one of your buttons and you suck on it to keep your, to keep your saliva th flowing and to help with your concentration. Like... And that's, you know, presumably his purpose. He's the guy that understands escapes. So he brings that expertise uh, into this group. But yeah, I do I do wish that there was more of him as, as well, because he's, he's, the, he's the first death, and it's kind of an ironic death, because they find a room that the boots don't set off the trap. Uh, he enters the room, but then he gets sprayed in the face by acid, and then they discover... Because at that point... Um, at that point of the movie... Uh, Joan has noticed that all the trap rooms have a prime number on their serial number, but that yeah. room didn't have a prime number. Uh, but it also didn't have motion sensors. It had like a chemical sensor. Uh, it sensed like when when like a person enters by like the scent their body gives off or or, or whatnot. Uh, and that's what leads to them, you know, that, that's what leads to one of the big tensions, because suddenly this thing that they've been relying on, looking for the prime numbers, they now realize no longer works. And that ups the stakes a bit. And I will say I was bashing on the effects earlier, but the effect of him getting poisoned was pretty good. Well, it's all practical effects. We see, you know, we see him yeah, panicking okay. with a melted face and an exposed mm. jaw. And then we just get a really, when he dies, we get a really gruesome shot where they look down at his body and his face is like caved in and you can still see the acid bubbling there. Um, yep. Uh, another character we get is, is not probably my least favorite character in the movie and I think the actress is an okay performance, but it's Dr. Holloway, who's a doctor and... That you have a doctor that's in here makes sense because people are going to get injured and so forth. Um, and then beyond that, she's also the only person who like knows how long they have to live because she knows how long the body can operate without without food. Yeah, that's right, without food and water. 
Um, and, and she does set up a, a plot point, but it's also a fact that the longer you go without food and water, the more you, you kind of get mania. You kind of go a bit nuts. Um, yeah. and, and you see the characters lose their grip on reality as it, as it goes through. Uh, I, I really... You know, even though the movie was filmed in, in just one cube set, as you, as you said, um, with different lighting in it, the director, uh, Vincenzo Natale, does a great job of, of mixing up his shots. I mean, there is a lot of close-ups, as you might suspect, but it never does the, like, Blair Witch Project shaky cam stuff. It, like, you, you think it might was sort of the trend in indie films at the time. It, um... And I really like it, it in some sequences, especially one later where they decide to take a, a nap for an hour. The camera <laughs> just pans over extreme close-ups of the cube. And you get this very minimalist music of like people whispering or whatever. And it's creepy. And like nothing's happening, but it's like a good sort of um, visual thing they throw in there a few times. Well, that music, which they use twice to indicate the passage yeah. of time... It is so weird and discordant, and it it sounds like those whispers should be words, but it's absolute nonsense. And I think those are the whispers are played backwards, but I can't prove that. I could see that. Yeah, and it's very sort of fast tempo, and, and that the music, there's, uh, from what I could tell, there's not much music in the film, um, which I think no, makes you pay really... more attention to the dialogue. Yeah, that's really the only music, the only other, like, sound effects, aside from, like, the trap, the only, like, environmental sound we get in this movie is that at every now and then, but at, presumably at a, at, at a standard interval, because they do mention that, you hear these weird rumbling noises, but also, I don't know if you heard, I didn't notice this the first time I watched it, but I really noticed it this time. Uh, did you, did you notice the alarm bells going off? It was really low in in the audio mix. No. But there were multiple times in the okay. movie where you where they would open a hatch and you would hear alarms going off. It sounded like in the distance. Hmm. And it was almost always when a hatch was opened. Yeah, I was mainly watching this movie with headphones. I think if I was watching it in my full home theater setup with the subwoofer, I could probably pick that up. But that that's a good uh, that's a good note. Um, but let's talk but let's it, talk about uh, Let's talk about uh, oh one of the the traits that that Doctor Holloway has. You know, we mentioned that everybody has like theories about what the cube is and why they're in it. And her whole thing is she's a conspiracy theorist. Uh, she thinks that this cube was made by the U.S. government or the military industrial complex as some sort of like weird psychological testing apparatus. Hmm. And her and her sort of knowledge, her knowledge of conspiracy theories never really plays off, but it is interesting to have. It reveals a lot about the character, and it's interesting to sort of weigh the various theories about where they are based on what what she what she says. And the wonderful thing about her conspiracy theories is they're never really preposterous. They're like good old fashioned conspiracy theories, just about powerful people committed to doing wrong. Right. Uh, but who do you want to talk about next? Yeah, yeah. I'm thinking, you know, um, as they sort of go through the first few rooms of the cube and it's after uh, Ren gets picked off, uh, they bump into a um, uh, another person who is really a, a trope in these sort of movies, uh, Kazan, 
who is, Wikipedia says autistic. They never outright say he's autistic, but I can see how you could come to that conclusion. Well, well, we um, never we never get a diagnosis, um, right, for him. But like he he has he has some sort of severe developmental disability. Like he he speaks in very few words. He's easily panicked. He has this like nervous. He has two nervous tics. There's like his normal tic where he's just kind of moving his fingers, almost like he's really almost like he's tapping on a calculator. Uh, sure, which yeah, kind of pays off later. But then also when he's under stress, he kind of pats his ear really aggressively. Um, and you also shout out words loudly. Over oh over yeah, again. yeah. And, and in fact, that actually is one of the scenes. Is when they there's their only way they can go is down. And it's a sound-activated trap, and they learn that because he just says "trap" down into the hatch, and we see all these spikes uh-huh. shoot out of the walls. And he's sort of delighted, and he just keeps going "trap" and watching the spikes shoot out. I actually, I but mean, I think that's, that's one of the best. Endearing. Yeah, no, and I think that's one of the best sequences in the movie as they figure out how to get through that room because they're discussing where well, should we leave this guy behind because he's just going to yell out loud and and kill us and. Um... And especially Dr. Holloway convinces him, no, no, we all need to go as a team and get through together. And they go one by one, kind of crawling on the uh, the overhangs and, you know, being very quiet. Presumably them breathing doesn't set off the trap. It has to be a loud enough sound. And um, it's really, I found it a very stressful scene in a good way where Kazan is trying to get through and looks like he's about to talk and um, the characters have to help him get through it. And then he almost, like, decides to go through a different door. That's right. He almost goes the wrong way. They turn him around. And then the last person going through is Quentin. And, uh, you know, the somewhat predictable thing of Kazan shouts out. And then Quentin's like, oh, shit. And he has to, like, go through right before the spikes get him. Oh, yeah. It's a, it's a pretty impressive scene. You know, I, I could have used more of that, of them working together. Um... But as you mentioned earlier, you, the key thing uh, later in the film is those numbers in the hatchways. And at first they think it's prime, and then they realize it's not. And then she guesses they are Cartesian numbers. Yeah, because we they do discover like how big the overall structure they're in is supposed to be. And we'll get into that when we talk about David Worth. But, um, you know, she does some math and is like, well, there has to be this many rooms and... They get to a point where they should be outside the cube, but they're the structure, but they're not. But then, yeah, they discover that the numbers on the serial numbers are Cartesian coordinates, which not only indicate where the room is within the structure, but they find out that those mechanical sounds they've been hearing is the is the structure reordering itself. The rooms move, and you can predict where the rooms are going to go based on like these integer expressions of the Cartesian coordinates. Yeah, and that's that's a real um, twist in the film, and it, you know, certainly think because of the limitation of budget, you really don't. You get maybe one or two scenes where you see the exterior of cubes moving around, but really, it's so much of it is in your imagination. And honestly, it is kind of better that way because one. Yes. Thing yeah. Sure. It doesn't. That and this this is just me being a, a stickler for like moving parts, but. The way we are shown, the way the cubes interlock, it would be impossible for them to move. Hmm. Like, because there are these tracks, these, like, grooves that you see, 
but moving down one set of grooves, you would be blocked by the other by the perpendicular set of grooves. The cubes cannot move as they're as described. I I realize that overall within the the scope of things, that's a very minor criticism. But every time they showed us what the outside of a cube looked like, like when they got to the edge. I could not stand that because I can all I I can all I can see is how the cubes can't move in the way described. Right. Um, oh, and that's when Kazan's purpose comes up because they talk about because like uh, that you know Joan is a very good mathematician, but she's not so good that she can figure out all the integers and expressions of the of the of the of the numbers. But it turns out Kazan can, and he can do it on the fly. Right, um, because they come to another conclusion of what the numbers are. Is that right? Well, the other the other thing they discover is that they also discover that there's a cube whose coordinates indicate that when the cube is in its starting position, that is outside of the structure. It makes a bridge connecting the structure to the outside world. And so that's the cube they have to try to get to before it moves out of space. Yeah, so their their goal is to get to that room, uh, and that's and that's kind of the subtle irony because when they get to that room, um, we mentioned that Joan's glasses had broken. When they enter that room, uh, her she her foot starts bleeding, and she sees she stepped on a shard of glass from her broken glasses, and that's when they realize that the room they all started in is the room that goes outside the cube when it resets. Yeah, I think that's a solid uh, solid twist. And, and yet, for me, it is not a twist, because I have read far too many sci-fi stories where that exact uh, thing happens. Sure. There, there are so many sci-fi stories where, like, a person's in the sealed environment, and they have to do something to escape, and only to find out that all they had to do was nothing. Like, the classic example is there's this, uh, there's this uh, story, I wish I could remember who, who wrote it, it's not, it's not... Bradbury. I wonder if it's Robert Forward, but where like a guy is, he's like offered all this money. He's he's put in a cell and he's offered all this money if he can if he can escape, uh, and he, within a certain amount of time. And the way he escapes is that he rips a light fixture down from the ceiling and dismantles it and assembles this tool that he uses to like cu- to cut a, to carve a hole into the outside wall. And he doesn't and he doesn't make it in time. Uh, and then in the end, he finds out, oh, the door to the cell was unlocked the whole time. And, and it also reminds me a bit of, um, this is a mild spoiler for Ready Player One, but... Um, <laughs> the magic uh, is you all along? Do you mind if I talk about this? It, no, no, go right ahead. Uh, okay, sure. Um, so if you don't want to be spoiled by some minor plot point, you know, skip ahead for like two minutes. Um, but so th- the main plot of Ready Player One, a recent movie, is... Uh, they, they got to get these, you know, three keys in these different sections in this virtual reality game. And the first one, they know the key is in, uh, or they're, they're somehow told the key is in this virtual reality sort of Mario Kart kind of racing scenario. And it turns out where the key is, is you have to drive backwards from where the race starts. And you'll find a little hidden door. And everyone thinks, oh, you have to go forward in the different laps of the race to win it. But no. It's huh. not. Um, so that's something that I was sort of reminded by when you were bringing that up with this sort of conceit. It was in you all, you know, it's the beginning is the end, blah, blah, blah. Um, we, Although, we had, what, there, yeah. there, there is a flaw in this, though, because they don't all start in that room. 
Right. You're you're right. Um, maybe like, they're hoping we've forgotten David, that. I think only David is in that room. Everyone else enters that first room. <laughs> Interesting. Um, so, with that, one character we've neglected to mention is um, Worth. Yeah, Worth is the guy who he doesn't talk much starting out, and then as the as the movie progresses, we come we come to find out that he does know something about the cube. He was an architect, and his firm was contracted to build the outer wall of the cube complex. They didn't know what it was for. You know, he just knew he was designing a giant cube with like a a door and. And like tracks, and that's all he knew. He had no idea who was building it or why, but he was paid a lot of money to do it. Uh, and and that actually pays into his theory. His sort of thing is that the world is chaos. Like nobody built this thing for any malicious purpose. They built it just to build it. it like he describes it as a public works project gone wrong, and they have to use it because if they don't use it, then they have to admit they spent all this money on nothing. <laughs> hmm. Yeah, and also the character, I, I was thinking of some of the dialogue of um, Worth, and it, it reminds me of very sort of 90s stuff, where he's just sort of like, oh, this sucks, blah, blah, blah. And he talks, you know, he makes a joke about, like, what his special skill is, and he's like, I have a large connection of pornography. Like, he's very sarcastic, which it's nice to get some sarcasm in there. Um, but yeah, I mean, as we work our way towards the end of the film, and, and Quentin gets more upset with escaping, and he kind of wants to get rid of the other people, I think the, the scene where he really turns is they're doing the math, and uh, they figure out they're in a room where they're up against the like the edge of the cube. And they, they look out through the hallway, and it's a... Uh, it's the outside, but it's not like... You know, but there's, like, all these cubes all around. It looks like complete darkness below. And so they take off their pants and make their pants into a rope. And uh, Dr. Holloway decides to go and climb down and see if she can swing into the cube below or try and get more of a, a lay of the land. Yeah, and she's not able to do it. And when she goes to climb up, uh, Quentin lets uh, Quentin, like, he's Quentin's supposed to pull her up, but instead he tosses her off the side and tells everybody that, that she slipped. Yeah. And and so, and this is this is interesting, because Quentin keeps making a big deal about how he can read people, but Holloway would seem to be the more, the better judge of character, um, because early on, as they're all, like, sort of telling their stories, Quentin talks about how he's got three kids at home that he wants to get back to uh, and that he, that his, his wife left him. His wife's not dead. She left him. There was some sort of divorce. Um, and during a scene, during a pretty decent scene where the tensions kind of reach a height, Dr. Holloway just kind of lays out that uh, Quentin must have been an abusive husband and father. And that's why his, that's why his wife left him. Uh, and in fact, he might not have custody of his kids, so his kids might not even be waiting for him on the outside. Mm, um, right. And that would seem to be accurate as Quentin does start to resort to violence more and more uh, as, as the movie goes on. 
that he would sure. seem to have this abusive like I don't I, the sense I get is that the cube isn't driving him mad there was already this sort of seed of an abusive personality in him, and when he can't get what he wants by being this motivating leader, uh, he just turns into a tyrant and starts using violence against people. Yeah. It's, um, it's a good turn for the character, and as, as we mentioned, he's sort of you know, paternal in the beginning, and then as, as, as the facade starts to break away, and as sort of the, the madness of being stuck in this cube with all these strangers and they're getting dehydrated and everything wears them down. It is um, a, a good idea, that, or you know, it, it's that he it becomes more traditional at the very in the end of the film where he's chasing off trying to pick people off and you think he's dead, but oh, he's not really. And in the meantime, they're trying to rush to that cube to get there to where to connect to the bridge that'll take him out to the exit. <coughs> Yeah, and and it is kind of it is kind of neat that like they they are able to get they're able to get ahead of of Quentin. I'm kind of actually I'm kind of surprised that they didn't try to like. Uh, and I realize they probably don't have enough time to do this because they because it's Joan and Kazan deciphering the numbers. But why they I'm kind of curious that they didn't try to trick him into entering a trapped room or like try yeah, to go yeah. around or cut him off. It's also it's also unclear. I guess he's he can he, hear them through the walls of the cube because that seems would seem to be the only. way Way he knows how to follow him, but yeah, I mean, in in the end, he does get because uh, at, uh, at that at that point, it's just Kazan and Joan uh, and Worth, and uh, he ends up getting Joan killed. He and Worth have a fight. Uh, uh, Worth ends up uh, dying. Quentin ends up getting cut in half when he's trying to go through a cube hatchway, and the cube he's in moves. Yeah, that's pretty. Um... Vicious. Also, you have uh, <coughs> just the scene where he's getting aggressive with them, and they ran out of boots. He just picks up people from the team and tosses them through the the connector. Oh, to set into off the a trap, empty yeah. room to try to set off the trap, which is just mean. You just see all these people further injured. Um, the ending of this film, I think, is a bit weak, but it's also like with the budget. Like, what else can you do? But no, I think this is one of the best things about the movie is, is that it really? we never okay. see outside the cube because in the <coughs> end, Kazan's the only character left alive, but he's in the bridge cube, and the hatch opens, and he crawls through the hatch, and there's just a hall, there's just a square hallway like the ones they've been in the whole time, but with light at this bright light at the end, so he just yeah. like, he walks towards it. Um, <coughs> I really feel like that's the best possible ending this movie can have. And there is, and there is something strangely beautiful that the only character that gets out is like, a, I guess the quote-unquote innocent one. Although Joan would seem to be innocent too. Like she never gets anyone killed. She doesn't have a dark past. I don't think so. Um, I mean, you could also do like the ironic, depressing ending where they go into the. He goes through the white light, and he ends up in just another cube. Uh, that that would be incredibly lame. <laughs> Okay, so um, I think like, we talked like, about what's out because it is a character story. What's outside the cube doesn't matter. I think it's very That's appropriate right. that we don't see what's waiting if you're smart enough to get out of this thing. Um, but if we're talking about purposes, do you think Quentin's purpose is to be a living trap? Because that's an idea that is tossed around when Kazan shows up. They like some of well, the Kazan's the trap. He's going to hold us back. Yeah, I never thought of it that way, but yeah, I think you're right. 
As it goes on, it's like, sort of a, a, a moving trap. Because Dr. Um, Helen's purpose would also seem to be she's the only one who can manage Kazan's emotions and disabilities. So, like, again, everybody would seem to have a clear purpose except for Quentin uh, and possibly Roth. Well, and what, what's... Um, or worth, and, What's interesting is, you know, this idea of doing a Cube movie is something the director had in, um, in college. <coughs> Excuse me. And... Um, in the original version, a monster would have chased people through the cube, and that's yeah, kind I'm of. Glad, what, I'm glad they ditched that idea. Yeah, but I mean, Quentin kind of becomes that monster at the end, sort of, right? Where he's chasing them, and the idea of him as a living trap, I think, is a smart call. Uh, I think you're right about that. Um, and you know, the, the script, it's the acting in this movie is not. It, it's fine for what it is. I think it because it's a lot of unknowns. I think that makes it more effective. Because you're looking at the person and you're not thinking, oh, that's John Travolta in a cube. It, you know, you you believe the, the character, they're all character actors, you believe them as their characters more, as opposed to movie stars. And um, I, I would give Cube a sequel, yes. I think it's it does marvels in its budget, you know, great set design, good uh, a good look to it, and has some interesting characters and uh, a very good premise. And I'm curious to see how they do how they do sequels to this in the weeks ahead. Because this seems like a one-shot uh, idea. This is going to be fascinating because I've seen the entire Cube trilogy, so I'm going to be really fascinated uh, rewatching it for this show, but also getting what getting what your first-time viewing experience is. Sure. Um, I assume the sequels were shown on Sci-Fi Channel as well, I would only think. I, I don't know, only because okay. they came out at a time when I didn't have cable, so if they did, I wouldn't have seen it anyway. Right, right. Um... Um, cube, 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 cube. Well, my my own rating. I'm going to give this a. I'm going to give this a sequel. Yes, as as well. This, d- despite like the only thing that really holds this this back, um, really is that some in some of the higher tension scenes, the acting gets a bit histrionic. Even even the even the dated CGI, I do not mind at all, just because it's okay. on the screen so briefly. This is a really good character study. It's just as long as it needs to be. It doesn't feel like my time's being wasted. It's it is a pretentious what could be, it is a pretentious idea with a very like workmanlike, well thought out uh, execution. And I I really do enjoy it. This 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 held up for me very very well. It is a uh, sequel. Yes. Oh, also. Did you notice Kazan might have known that they needed to stay in that first room the whole time? No, why do you think that? Well, because when they first find him, he's talking about the colors of the rooms, and he keeps saying, oh. I want to go back to the blue room. The blue room is the room they started in. There you go. That's a good catch. Um, I, I do wonder, I think of that movie, uh, Be Kind, Please Rewind, and I wonder if someone on YouTube has done a sweeted version of the cube done with a few <laughs> cardboard boxes. Because if, you, you could do that, and it could for, perhaps work in a fun, if, sort of cheesy way. If they have, we've got to watch it and review it as part of the series. Yeah, I'd have to look around about that, but that just sort of came to mind. Um, pitch a sequel. So uh, I have an idea in mind, Thrasher. If I was yeah. doing a sequel to this original one, um, I would make it um, be something where uh, it would be a crossover with the Hellraiser series. Huh. Where it turns out the lament configuration is actually a cube, and people live inside it. <laughs> the Cenobites are real people. The Cenobites are real people, yeah. And um, 
And it, it would it would start off, you think it's a cube movie, and then halfway through you realize it's a Hellraiser crossover, and you get the actual, uh, some Cenobites are inside the Lament configuration, <laughs> chasing the people that are trapped in there. Oh, that's great. And it would be called, um... And I think the title, you wouldn't give away that it's a plot that it's connected to Hellraiser, but you would just be called Hell Cube. <laughs> Do not give away the shocking myth of this film. <coughs> yeah, uh, I'm thinking of the poster for Psycho, right? Nobody will be admitted if they're late to this movie. <laughs> What's your pitch of sequel? Okay, my pitch of sequel is going to be uh, Cube Tribes. Uh, so we're going to have to raise the stakes. We're going to have to get more characters. So one of the things that's pointed out in this movie is that in the in the cube, there's no food, there's no water, and there's no restrooms. And in fact, there's a scene that hangs a lantern on this where Kazan has to has to urinate, and so they he goes in the corner. Uh, so this next movie it's going to take place in an expanded cube complex, and one of the changes to this cube complex, which is like let's say six times as big on a side. It's that big of a mega... It's a mega cube. Uh, and one of the differences is, in addition to safe rooms and trap rooms, there are resource rooms. And in these resource rooms, when they when they slide into place, they contain enough food, water, and clothing for six people. Now, this cube is so big, there are multiple groups of six people in it, but we have no idea how many... But these groups of six people, they've all they've all kind of turned into tribes, and they all wander the cube looking for the resource rooms to keep themselves alive. So there are some people who have been in the cube for like over a year, and uh, but we will follow a group of new arrivals who have just woken up in this cube. And it'll kind of take on almost sort of a Mad Max Fury Road thing, because the tribes that can't find the resource rooms inevitably end up resorting to cannibalism. Uh, and so that's how we're that's how we're going to raise the stakes. But like in the uh, previous film, one of the new people figures out the numbers on the cube and discovers that there is a way to get out of the cube. Uh, but one of the things is you don't want to get out by just staying into a resource room and waiting for it to be filled, because it turns out the resource rooms turn into trap rooms. And that's also one of the dark things about the film is that as every resource room turns into a trap room after a set amount, after it's cleared of resources, the cube keeps getting more and more trap rooms. And the only way to turn a trap room into a safe room is for somebody to die in it. So you flat out have tribes that kidnap people just to send them into trap rooms to reset them to make them safe. And so they have to get the, the room that's going to leave the cube, they have to get to that room while also dealing with an increasing number of traps. Hmm. And like and like the first film, I think whoever gets out, and I really really I really would like the uh, the smart character to get out this time, but whoever gets out whoever gets out, although maybe it'll be the pregnant character, because there will be a pregnant character in this one, I guess I should have mentioned. Yeah, the pregnant character gets out. Like we'll see them go into the light, and that'll be uh and that'll be it. So again, we won't learn what's going on outside the cube. Although I suspect one of the characters will be like a contractor who built a trap cube, uh, not knowing where it was going to go. Like, I do kind of like the idea that in every one of these cube scenarios, there's one person who had a hand in building the cube, even if they didn't know what they were doing. Would it turn out in the end the pregnant woman gives birth to a baby cube? <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> no, I'm not that cheesy. Not oh, that cheesy, okay. Some, something I forgot. So uh, the hatches in the cube where you have to twist this, you have to twist this thing to, to open it. One of the things I kept noticing, and I completely forgot that this paid off, is that there's a little nut. Uh, there's a there's a, a screw that holds the that holds the, uh, the the valve, for lack of a better term, on its pivot. And I kept thinking, wow, you could just unscrew that and take that thing. That pays off because Quentin unscrews one of the hatch handles and sharpens it and uses it as, as a shank. That's right. Um, I, I was thinking when you mentioned that when they open. The cube, it makes a very, the, the, well, sort of, they open the door, it makes a very satisfying sound effect. It's a stock sound effect, but like it works. Oh, yeah. And it, it adds a lot, you know, if they had no sound effect there, it just would feel a bit empty, and, and you pay more attention to the sounds in this film, because and there's no music. I'm sure that door is entirely molded plastic, but the sound effect they play makes it seem like a big, sturdy steel door. Yeah, no, really good effects work. Um... So I have a question for you, Thrasher. What is that question? Wheat or white toast? Uh, no. What you're, watch, or what you're watching? Uh, well, most recent thing, and I actually do not remember if I, if I mentioned this last time, but I did finally see Solo. Oh, you have not mentioned that. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah not, what did you I'm think? Not I'm not going to go into too much detail because I know we are going to cover that when we go back to the to Star Wars in, in a future date. Um, I can see that day on the horizon. Uh, all, all I'm going to say is I I really did enjoy it. it. It certainly does have its flaws, but it's more more so more so than Rogue One or the Last Jedi. This this feels like the fun the fun swashbuckling Star Wars movie that I've kind of always wanted. It, it is certainly it is not it is not great, but it's almost everything I want out of a Star Wars film. I found it very very fun and entertaining and satisfying. I was not a big fan. I um, and it's interesting. I've read some people hypothesizing, and I think this makes sense. People that liked Episode Eight, The Last Jedi, don't like Solo, and people that like Solo don't like The Last Jedi. Huh. Interesting. But yeah, I think um, we'll, we'll talk off mic about when we're going to do the new Star Wars movies because <laughs> clearly that's been coming to a boil, something we've been meaning to talk about. I've been reading a, a book, believe it or not, trying to get back into reading books is just difficult with uh, not having much time. But now that in my new job, I have a bus commute of uh, a little bit under an hour in, a morning, in the morning and then almost an hour and a half on the way back. Wow. I have a lot of time in my hands to go less than 10 miles. <coughs> so, I've been reading a Ray Bradbury book based on his experience writing the script for the 1950s movie Moby Dick. Oh, cool. It's Green Shadows, White Whale. And it talks about him going on Ireland, uh, to Ireland, where it's being filmed and working on the script with uh, John Huston. He changes the names a bit, um, <coughs> but it's just, you know, Ray Bradbury's known more for short stories than for novels, and... Uh, it's just interesting to see him describe Ireland at that time, and a lot of it, I wonder how much of it is fictionalized or not, because it, it does seem like every Irish stereotype comes true, where he lands in town and he goes to the bar, and everyone has a magical, fun saying. But it's um, <laughs> it's different than what I normally read, but I think it's it's fun, and you really get the sense of Ray Bradbury 
was he felt he was treated really poorly by the director, but at the end of the day, that's just how the director worked with people. And John Huston, uh, you know, aside from being the father of Angelica Huston, has done so many legendary movies, and it makes me want to check out that version of Moby Dick. You know, I'd like to check that out as well. I, I, I very much enjoy the works of Ray Bradbury. <coughs> yeah, this one reads, even though it's fic, you know, like fictionalized, it reads more like a memoir, um, which, which is kind of fun to see. I always like reading author um, autobiographies. Um, you know, that, that actually would be a kind of a fun book club to only read books that are fictionalized accounts of real showbiz things that the authors did. Because you got this, but there's also that novel that uh, that uh, I think it was like Harlan Ellison and Ben Bova co-wrote, which was a fictionalized account of their time on the Canadian science fiction series Star Lost. I don't know that one. That sounds like fun, though. It, well, well, apparently, like it, it is half a farcical retelling of all the behind-the-scenes drama of that show, but then it's also a farcical. It's also a farcical reinterpretation of that show's premise because I think actual aliens do show up on the set of the show at some point. Hmm. Um, yeah, one of the more interesting ones is one I think that I gave you as a as a gift, but I selfishly read it beforehand before giving it to you. But it was the the memoir from the actor that was the robot in Red Dwarf. Oh, Robert Llewellyn. Yeah. Yeah, and it's it's cool because he talks about like the failed attempt at doing an American pilot of the series in which they wanted to, in which they kept him as the robot. <clears throat> that the three chapters <coughs> about the Amer the attempt at doing an American Red Dwarf and its fallout are truly amazing. Particularly the third chapter in that section, which is all about him coming back to Britain after the American remake Tanks, and then presuming production on the British show. <laughs> Yeah, that has to be a real a surreal experience. I can't imagine. <clears throat> um, Have you seen that American pilot uh, for Red? No, Dwarf? no, but I bet it's on YouTube or something. I, it, it it has like I, it keeps getting taken down. I have, and what actually what's fascinating is that uh, the Grant and Naylor, the creators of Red Dwarf, they wanted to include that pilot on the DVD for the wow. of Red Dwarf that came yeah. out like either right before or right after they, they made it. They couldn't get the rights to their own pilot, so instead they made a really elaborate documentary using clips. But the pilot, like, the pilot's really good. The oh, only, is it? Okay. The only thing that holds it back is that if you had been watching the British Red Dwarf, you've already heard some of those jokes because they recycle some of their bits. But then two... They make uh, they make Lister too handsome. Like they make Lister Han Solo. Mm. Uh, he should not be Han Solo. <clears throat> he really should be more of a Kevin James type. Yeah, kind of dumpy looking. Um, another <clears throat> excuse me. Another one is. Uh, have you seen the American pilot for the IT Crowd with Joe McHale? I saw the first half. Yeah, it it's that same thing of using kind of some of the original script stuff, but like it's just. The, the rhythms of um, British actors in a BBC sitcom is so different than what you see in an American show. I mean, that that really is what made me turn it off, is that the pacing is all <clears throat> wrong. Because it, it's almost beat for beat the same script as the first episode of the British IT crowd, but the pacing just does not work for that style of humor. For the same reason, the pilot of the American Office series isn't very good, because it, it almost is line for line, in a lot of ways, the same as the... Uh, yeah. BBC pilot, uh, with yeah. them putting putting the stapler in the jello and all those things. Um, 
Yeah, oh, if you want to see, this also comes to mind, I've been watching bits and pieces of this, but uh, recently I picked up the Blu-ray of The Frighteners, the Peter Jackson Ghostbusters ripoff film. Oh, no, it's not a Ghostbusters ripoff. Sort of, eh. It it brings to mind, I don't know, it's, it's a strange kind of comedy ghost movie. I love it, though. And, yeah, and uh, what's... It has a copy of the four-hour documentary that originally was on the Laserdisc. That, I think, is the first example of Peter Jackson doing his super long-ass documentaries he tends to have on most of his movies. Nice. And um, really interesting to see. And they, they filmed it in New Zealand, and the I, I recall there was a fun bit with Michael J. Fox mentioning how the... Um, how the script tried to have American sl- it had like New Zealand slang peppered everywhere, and the American actors had to come in and cut all that out because it's like if you're setting this in an American town, which you are, they would not say all these things. Like they'd be looking at some of the <laughs> the um, I can't think of a specific one, but they'd be looking at some of the the turns of phrase, and they're like, "No, an American would not say this," and rightfully cut that stuff out. Um, <laughs> So, and at one point they were considering doing it, I think, as a Tales of the Crypt movie. Huh. It, it could have worked in that format, although I'm glad that mm-hmm. it is what it is. Right, because Zemeckis is one of the producers um, on it. But anyway, so cool. A lot, of, a lot of cool stuff going on. So next week we'll be talking about Cube 2 Hypercube. But before we go, we're going to do our sequel scene, in which <laughs> Quentin and Worth are uh, talking to each other about the cube, naturally, because that's most of what people talk about in the movie. Uh, who, who do you want to be? Um, I think I'd like to do Worth. Okay, I'll be uh, I'll be Quentin, and um, they're in the cube. They're talking to each other. Go. Oh, yeah. Go. I I don't want to die. I'm just being realistic. Do you think they go to all the trouble to build this thing if we could just walk out? Do you think they would have left us clues and let us beat it so far if there wasn't a way out? You think we matter? We don't. Put us out of your misery so we can get on with getting out of here. Oh, you're not getting out of here. Yes, we are. No, you're not. Yes, we are. There's no way out of here. Da-da-da-da-da-da. Um, <laughs> you know, reading the part of the script like that, it really goes to show how much uh, gives me more credit, I suppose, to the actors in the movie. Because on the page, it's very, you know, matter of fact, in the wrong hands, that dialogue could be just horrendous. Yeah, you, it's, you it's do very matter of fact it to make it work. That's right, yeah. <clears throat> very matter of fact dialogue. So next week is Cube 2 Hypercube. Following that is Cube 0. And, um... And if we can find it, the Dutch version of Cube. <laughs> yeah, the Sweden version. I don't I don't think one exists, but part of me wishes you could film that. But I, I do wonder if there's ever been, like, a Cube-themed escape room. Part of me feels like there, there must, but that would require so much space. It would, but you do have seen things where you have now, like, a movie-licensed escape rooms, because they did a Saw one at some places, and which makes sense, of course. And I thought those were pop-ups. Were they licensed? They might be... <clears throat> uh, so, some of them were licensed, yeah. 
But, you know, some of them are, are pop-up operations as, as well. It just sort of depends. I went to a really cool one. It, it wouldn't say an escape room, but it's a pop-up putt-putt golf course that would just open up in warehouses unannounced across the U.S. Huh. And, like, one of them that made me think of this movie was... Uh, so, I mean, they're all very engineered holes, and you have to do them interior, but one of them is you go inside a, a cube thing, and there's lasers, and there's a little bit of smoke... And so you can just barely make out the layers as the smoke undulates in the room. The lasers as the smoke undulates in the room. And you have to hit the ball so it doesn't hit the, la the laser. And if it does, an alarm goes off. And I think you get hit with water. <laughs> you know, when I think of Sequel Cast 2, I do think of Engineered Holes. Yes, um, speaking of Engineered Holes, let's find our escape uh, to the episode. Um, <laughs> well, there's a hatch that way. That's right, let me, let me just turn it. Oh, just pulled my shoulder there. There we go. Squeezed out. Um, just some time. As Thrasher is chasing me with a, uh, with a number two pencil. <laughs> so, uh, follow me on Twitter at M-A-T-W-B-T. <laughs> follow me on Twitter at Internet Mayor. For Sequel Cast 2, this is Matt. And this is Thrasher. Saying... Don't you get it? One hand doesn't know what the other hand is doing. That's how this whole thing was set up. You're turning my mind into some sort of a cube. <laughs>